0: Welcome back to AHP Hunting, Shooting and Fishing Radio here on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Great to have you back for another year. Uh, It's 2020 and wow, where did 2019 go? I hope you guys had a great 2019. I wish you all the best for 2020. I hope over this new year you've been out hunting, shooting and fishing. I tend to sort of hang up the you know, the rifle this time of year, it just gets way too hot. Uh, unless I've sort of got access to a property, more spotlighting and stuff like that, I tend to concentrate a little bit more on the fishing. But uh, if you can handle the heat <laughs> and you're out there having fun and shooting all types of animals, all the power to you, you are one lucky bastard if that's the case. And uh, we've been almost doing this podcast probably wow it's coming up to almost 10 years soon i just can't believe it over 210 episodes and we're still growing still continuing and that's the main thing so of course if you want to visit us go to australianhuntingpodcast.com.au if you'd like to go on the website as usual you can find us on itunes as well if you want to listen to the show you can also download the Podbean app and if you want to get in contact me for anything to do with straight shooting leave us a voicemail on the website guys we love the voicemails if you want a topic that you would like to discuss or you think's worthy uh, of us discussing, please uh, send us a voicemail on the website. If you go to the Australian in the right hand side slider bar, you'll see leave voicemail. The voicemails are about 90 seconds, so leave us a voicemail, whatever topic you want to talk about, we'd love to talk about that. If you think there's something that's very interesting that's popped up, of course, send us an email to Australian podcast at gmail.com. I know some guys I like to keep the emails for the straight shooting, so if you don't if I don't get back to you, initially just listen to the straight shooting podcast because normally if it's something to do with a discussion about that i definitely will include it during the straight shooting episodes but on today's show i thought it was very interesting that we should start talking about optics something that i've been wanting to talk about for quite some time I want to find out about glass, where glass is made, the different coatings of glass, binoculars, rangefinders, scopes, and one probably of the most important things, where glass comes from, where it's made, how it's made. The qualities of glass, I think, is ultimately going to be a great podcast. and I'm going to talk to Rick Christiani from Leica. As you know, Leica are a great uh, European manufacturer, making all types of optics for all different walks of life. And Leica are definitely up there in the quality when it comes to optics. So we'll bring Rick on the show. Rick Christiani, welcome to AHP. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on the
0: show. Excellent. I want to talk about optics. So First off, just tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Well, I've, um, I'm have working for Leica. Like At the moment, I've been there for about two years, just over two years. And I'm a product specialist. I do a national role and I look after uh, New Zealand as well. And, um, but basically, yeah, well, my past history is I worked with Beretta for about six years. I was a product specialist there for Steiner and Barnes Optics. And I did it for about a year's worth of military sales work as well as the optics division. And then I had a bit of a break. And then I went, I worked for Tasco Sales. And Tasco Sales, we had Bushnell Optics and, um, and Simmons, I was a national, I was a Victorian sales rep right across the board selling the rifles and ammunition and optics as well. I'm mainly focused on the optics channel as well and photographic. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's my background as far as optics goes, but I've, you know, I've admired optics as I was a kid, and you know, I still actually had my first pair of Zeiss that I bought in 1982, which... Um, if you look through the glass in those now, they're pretty average, even though they were <laughs> at the top end back then. Yeah, yeah right. And that it just goes to show as to how optics has you know, it's developed. It's almost a twofold, actually. What you bought 30 years ago, even up until, oh, I'd say, probably five or 10 years ago, what comes out of the factories now. And um, even talking of Chinese manufacturing, absolutely, you know, it's, it's a very good glass.
0: Yeah, right. I was, actually, I'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. I was actually having a chat to a friend about that, and we're talking – this is how we were chatting about different grades of glass and stuff like that, and yeah. we're talking about the European or the Japanese versus yeah. the, the new yeah. Chinese stuff. And, yeah, a lot of people are speaking good about the Chinese stuff, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Did you ever get involved yeah. in any sort of hunting or shooting or no, or you just Yeah, I do. I, no, I love my hunting
1: and I love my optics, and, um, you know, I've got a, a collection of both there and um, all my photography as well. So – yeah, everything involved around optics and hunting. and am always into a lot of my fishing as well, a bit of four-wheel driving. So,
0: yeah. how did you get into it when you were growing up? Was that a family thing or did you get into it with yeah, a friend? Family thing.
1: No, just a family thing. You know, when I was young, you know, I actually I used to hang around with some some of the guys did a lot of dogging and um, been, I was dogging deer since I was about probably uh, 10 years old with the Hessies and there for a while. And um, then I got into a bit of stalking. And then it's just, you know, once you get your license, then you sort of branch off and do other things, but mainly. Mainly I, I, what I enjoy doing is talking about anything else. And I'm always sitting behind a bench doing, you know, testing scopes and whatever, so.
0: Yeah, how did you get involved with your work for a lot of different companies? You said Beretta and then Tasco Sales, and then how did you get involved with uh, Leica?
1: Well, basically, um, I was working for, um, I left Tasco Sales, and, uh, you yeah, know, I was actually approached by, by my manager director, who's by my Mullins, he um, offered a position there, so... I thought I was a appropriate guy for the job, and I uh, took it on. Yeah, and that was about two and a half years ago, yeah.
0: Fantastic. So tell us about uh, Leica as a company. I mean, how long they've been going, if you, if, you, if you know that information, and how was it developed and sort of thing, yeah.
1: Look, Leica has a, has a strong history in optics, obviously, but um, basically they, they designed the very first, uh, one of the first commercial uh, binoculars, which was in 1907, and it was a very simple pair of 16 by 18s that they developed. And um, it took off from of there. then, obviously, but is very well known for them. But well, their photographics, obviously, that's their main source of income. They, um, but optics has always been their forte. And, you know, with their camera lenses, they're constantly winning awards every year as, you know, some of the finest optics on the market. So there's a lot of depth in that company. And and everything that they do photographic-wise, obviously, gets banded to their binoculars and their riflescapes. So uh, any company involved with photographics as glass manufacturers they will always produce the best optics when it comes to binos and binoculars because I've had that experience with um, You know, great color rendition and um, color contrast in their glass.
0: How long have you? How long has Leica been making? I mean, have they been making all different optics and how long they've been making them for? Have they started to branch into different other markets or? Well,
1: basically, binoculars have always been there since uh, since day dot since nineteen oh seven. But um, they started on riflescopes. Probably in the 19, I think it was 1950s or so, they started making riflescopes back then. But then they were sort of in and out of the industry. And um, quite a few things happened, after, you know, probably 10 years ago, though, they sort of got back together and started producing their first series of riflescopes, which was the ER series. And um, that all came about because, you know, they, they actually had some really good technicians on board. A lot of technicians, you know, came from other various companies, some. Now we we'll still have guys there from Schmitt and Bender and other companies. So we got a lot of depth in our optical um, technicians there. Yeah. Huge depth, actually. And you know, we we have annual meetings generally twice a year. They're, they're technical meetings and product development meetings, and the amount of depth of these guys that we speak to every day, you know, they've worked all the industry. Some work was nice. We've got Dr. Optics and all there and you share a lot of um, very interesting stories as to their background. Yeah, I wanted... it. yeah. tell me, yeah.
0: Sorry, I was just gonna say, give us, I wanted to find out more of a rundown of what, uh, give me uh, a rundown of what Leica sells in regards to optics, different type of optics, obviously we know binoculars, what else do they sort of sell as well?
1: Okay, well, binoculars, riflescopes, and obviously laser range fighters, we've um, we celebrated 25 years of our laser range systems last year. And we do make the finest laser range-finding systems in the world, not only in, um, in a sporting field, but also we work very closely with Bitronics, who are one of the leaders in military laser range-finding systems, and also in our uh, geo-systems, which is surveyors um, use you know, laser range laser rangefinders So definitely, and obviously, and there's also a medical division as well, of in making uh, microscopes and um, surgical equipment as well.
0: I've actually got a Leica 2400. I originally had a, a, a different brand, and I, <laughs> I sort of wasn't too happy with the way that it was performing, just on uh, beam divergence. To chat just a little bit about the beam divergence of Leica products, because when I like had the, a different model or from a different company, fair enough, there was a different, a major difference in 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 the pricing structure of the Leica compared to the the other product. Now I understand the beam divergence; it was the longer, the further I go out, the bigger that beam basically was. Can you explain it to? people? on how, how, how it affects long term, yeah.
1: Well, so basically, beam um, a like I just say, the CRF that you have there, the 2400, has a beam divergence of about 1.2 metre by one metre at, at one kilometre. So you double that distance and just say, you know, at two kilometres, and your beam divergence will be 2.4 by two metres. So basically, how it works. Up to 500 metres, your beam divergence like is 500, like a 500 mill square. So they're very accurate. And, um, but you're, we're approaching the actual limit as far as our, our class three lasers go, or class two lasers. So um, the latest ones actually, they're, they're super quick. You know, every, on scan mode, they'll, they'll process a distance every 0.5 a second. Yeah. So if you've got an animal running away from you and you're hitting the animal, just say you'll be able to get a reading every 0.5 a second on that animal. But it's, um, actual fact, you can actually hit the side of a, just say a sander at the, on a hill out to, to, of a kilometre with a load of 3,000 HTV. That's how accurate it is. However, you must hold it. I mean, you must hold the very steady of course. Yeah. Because that laser, laser speed of light's got to come back to you as well. Yep. And yeah you know, come back into the ob- objective
0: lens. I noticed when I was using one of the the other brands it's like I said quite a different uh, in, in the pricing of each of the products but I noticed it sometimes pick up stuff in front and then pick up stuff behind maybe shrubs uh in front of the target giving me sort of false readings. So it was more it was more the the beam divergence on the Leica is a lot better so at longer distances hopefully I'm not picking up you know those shrubs and those types of things.
1: Yeah plus um one thing very important is, I, I get a lot of comments on this back down, you know, that on certain days that don't seem to work as well, but people forget that aberrations in atmospheric pressure play a huge role in uh, laser range finding. So um, if you're trying to, if you're standing it, just say, if you're sitting down looking out across the paddock, that's a warm day, you're going to get a lot of aberrations coming through. That will affect the laser. So basically, yeah, any it needs to be quite a, quite a um, reflective surface get a good good distance a good distance and secondly a good range distance as well
0: when that happens does that does that give false readings what are the what are the cons when that actually happens what, Yeah, what you, you can see? get false
1: readings not get a reading at all actually it'll um, the beam will actually deflect in those aberration type situations so um yeah so you always need a pretty much old sort of sort of um uh, object to sort of reflect back. As a matter of fact the best conditions always at night time i mean if you range a if you if you had troubles ranging something to stay a kilometre during the day, as soon as the sun goes down, you'll, you'll hit that every time. That's just the difference
0: that it makes. You brought up something very interesting that I wanted to talk about. Where you're holding it steady now it depends. It's very hard to hold a very important. small yeah. little rangefinder steady at distance. Is it better if you're at, at say what distance do you think where that come becomes a, a bigger problem? I was just down on the riverina a couple of weeks ago, and you know I was trying to shoot 650 meters. The wind was blowing; it was very difficult just, just to stay on target. Is using a tripod or something like that a better option to to make it a little easier? That makes a huge difference. Yeah, it does. Yeah, no.
1: You've got, um, especially right, if you're on a range where you've got quite a hard surface and you like it more no evaporation, um, the uh, the tripod's essential. Yeah, it'll work very
0: well for you. What about, I noticed, over the years too, obviously, you know, different terrain, it's very hard to get, and, and like it does it quite well because mine does it quite well, but flat land compared to mountainous land. Obviously, if you're on top of a mountain or you're looking up into a mountain and you'd like to, to shoot an animal that's on the mountain somewhere, it's easier just to go bang, there it is. But I noticed, again, with the, some, some cheaper products, trying to get a reflection or a beam back from flat ground was very difficult. Is that also an issue compared to mountainous versus flat country?
1: It is actually, and keep um, in mind Australia that our our gum trees, they, they, they let out a lot of vapour during the day, they, they do by So we do have a lot of um, disturbances in the atmosphere when it comes to trying to get a clear beam ahead of us. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you were hunting mountain compared to just, say, did a trip to New Zealand trying to shoot tar where there's no gum trees or anything, but, but actually, I've seen this myself, actually. When you engage targets, in New Zealand, out in the mountains, you, um, it seems so much easier. For some reason, I don't know what it is, but in Australia we get a lot of gum freeze and a lot of vapour and dioxide coming out of those leaves during the day especially. It does make a difference to the laser. The Australian Hunting Podcast is the only hunting, shooting and fishing podcast radio show in Australia. With over 40,000 downloads per month, you are sure to find some information that can help you. If you love hunting, shooting, fishing and a little bit of politics, the Australian Hunting Podcast has you covered. To listen, check us out on iTunes and visit australianhuntingpodcast.com.au
0: I did notice again on the flatter ground it was yeah you know, not with the like uh, so much but the the cheaper ones yeah just getting a reflection off a off a flat ground at distance just was proving very, extremely difficult and uh, trying to get you know accurate ranges as well it's <laughs> this well, long you've range. Under,
1: yeah you've got to understand something that um, with with the laser function of that you know you, you're emitting a, a laser which is around eight hundred nanometers okay so it's it's a slow wavelength however. Um, the slower the wavelength in actual fact you 're going to get a better reading, but then you, you go to a different class of lasers, you go to military type products like at fifteen hundred nanometers it 's an invisible way. you can 't see the night vision you 've see and that 's what the military alarm so but they 're very they 're very good you know that the slower the laser actually although that sort of speed at fifteen hundred nanometers is exceptional yeah but unfortunately we can 't release those to the public so
0: yeah, yeah, we, we, three, we, more, we, right? we need the good stuff we need the military stuff <laughs> look we do um, but unfortunately we can't so. um, well, since we're talking about rangefinders as well I know there's you know, obviously a lot of popular binoculars these days from not just your brand but many different brands as well are coming out with you know binoculars and the rangefinders in one is there a sort of a pro and a con to each individual system as say having a pair of binoculars and a range finder or having it all built into one
1: well it depends on the application, as you see. We're one of the only ones that make a 15 by 56 with a built-in laser rangefinder. That laser rangefinder will, um, will measure up to about 1100 metres, but it's a very unique binder in that respect. But if you're prone, the big thing is now, you know, there's so many DLs want to shoot deer at a kilometre plus with their 3-8 edges or whatever. They get custom-built for themselves. And they're relying on optics like 15 by 56 and spotting scopes, and then they'll engage... Um, a laser range finder, obviously, to get a distance, and then with ours in particular, we can um, we have a ballistic profile system where you you take that shot very accurately. Um, but what will happen is, if you if you incorporate lasers into into binos that just say like a fifteen power, you um, you've got the best of both worlds in actual fact you can range compared to 100 metres on that
0: shot. What are the most uh, popular optics? I mean, you, you're you're in the game, so what's the popular optics that Leica sells? What's their most popular sort of product? Or even if you're talking about binos as well, the most popular power that generally gets sold to, I guess we're talking about hunters and shooters here, so that'll be the perfect... Okay, so
1: basically, um, most popular power in... Let's go to... Uh, most popular products have to be our laser range binos, I'd say our, our CRF handheld units or our binoculars, and then followed by our Magnus series of riflescopes and our new Fortis. Now, in binoculars, our most popular is still a 10 power, 10 by 42, and then um, and then it's a breakup of 842, 856, and 15 by 56. In mm-hmm. riflescopes, I'd have to say our most popular is a 2.5 to 15 in our Fortis or our 2.4 to 16 in our Magnus. And then from there we go, 1.8 to 12. By 50 mil objective, and a 1.5 to 10, but it always has to be our home applications that sort of drawing customers on board. We do sell, actually, actual fact, though, no, we do sell quite a few of our LRS, which is our long-range targeting type system of, of rifle scopes, and that's a that's a um, 6 to 26 power. So that particular scope, that's actually a real benchmark scope. That that scope, in particular, I have to say, out of any scope I've ever used whether it's tactical or hunting, that really has the
0: best up, you want to say. Technology's come a long way. Um, what's the different styles of binos? You've got the roof prism. Can we talk about that? A bit of image stabilisation. And what was the other one? We were talking in email before. Is it Poro? Poro? That... Oh, Poro prism, yeah. Poro prism binos. Yeah. Can pyro you explain prism. those, yeah?
1: Well, Poro prism, they're the, they're the uh, binoculars with a shoulder on them, so the objective is offset to the ocular. Now, that's, you know... Roof prisms have only been around and been popular since probably, oh, I'd say, probably 30, 40 years ago. But prior to that, everything was a prism. And the benefit of a prism is that with the light beaming through the objective lens, you're getting more deviations of light. So you're getting a very, very bright image. In, in actual fact, a, you can buy a set of pyroprisms which will cost you half the price of the top end roof prism by now will give you just as good an image if not better. And the, the best... The highest light transmission of any binder always comes out of pyrophysm for that fact alone. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass, enhanced with T-star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight,
0: high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit Visit to find your local dealer. Zeiss. We make it visible. Really? So what what's the pros and cons to each one? Is there a benefit to a certain type of viewing that you're doing or what's the benefit of each one?
1: Well, you see, with pyroprisms, you can um, you can have huge, like, astronomical types, 80mm objective up to 25 power, but very comfortably you get a very pleasant view out of it. You couldn't make a roof prism like that. It would be enormous and so heavy. But the, the roof prism, by the way, that it's more compact. And with the roof prism, obviously, you know, it's um, yeah, it's just it's just a compact design, really. That's what's got it.
0: So if I was, say, out hunting, and I've got, say, an 8 to 42 or a 10 to 42, will they be the roof prism or will they be the poros you're just talking about?
1: Well, the magnification, with roof prisms, the poro prisms, the magnification's are the same. You know, the 842s, or, that's irrelevant. It's just, it, it's based on the prism type and the style of binocular. Having worked for it, for many years, they, um especially military. They, you know, they they do make one of the best power prisms in the market. They, I don't think it else makes them prices as strong or as durable as theirs. So when, they,
0: so I was going to say when when someone's going in to purchase them, because you said there was quite a difference in the in the pricing. So I'm just wondering, you know, are they making more of the roof prism? and they making more of the other one? If someone goes into no, I'd have
1: to say ten percent of sales are in pyro prisons, the rest are all roof prisons. It's just a you know, they're, they're far more compact. And and with roof prisons, you know, you buy the eight by twenty and 10s the pocket productals as well. Yeah, it's just um it's it's just the way binos are going now. Pyro prisons definitely have a have a market, a huge market in astronomical type and especially military type applications. But um, yeah, it's just a phase. I mean, like anything else, suppose, well. you know, diesel versus petrol, you know, what's more popular. So but at the yeah. moment, the benefits definitely towards the business
0: type, and that's where most of the development always goes into. Now, you, and you you brought up a one just earlier too, where you had an old pair of uh, Zeiss binoculars. But I want to talk about you know, how has how has this changed? I mean, yeah, you know, obviously we have really good optics these days, which I'm sure you can probably attest to. So, how can we, especially in 2019, getting into 2020, early next year, how can we? possibly improve i mean my my eyes aren't getting any better you know as i get any older but i don't have glasses yet but how do i get like how can we possibly get better it's like technology's really become that good at the moment how can we possibly keep making better you know optics the
1: thing is if you look at glass manufacturing okay the um the everything's all computer controlled now computer ground so you're getting absolutely the best most precise grinding techniques and also, with the information, information of um, a fluoride type glass, which is uh, ED glass, which is very common on both girls you're getting some of the best images you can. Look, I doubt very much if a company was to invest, like, it would cost them probably millions of dollars to get that light transmission to a certain level. At the moment, anything over 91, 92% in a roof prison is, is you know, quite an exception for black um, Pyro prisons are achieving up to 96% light transmission, which is pretty phenomenal. That's it. use of proper, you know, fluoride glass and um, and building, and oculus te- techniques. However, we've hit a pinnacle. Whatever you buy now, which is, you know, one of the top breaking buyers, whether it's from Zeiss, Leica or Swire or whatever, you will not get a better, better buyer than what you will, get, you know, up, up until this point. The only difference you'll see in the future is the addition of electronics. And I I think within a few years, you'll see a lot of oculus, you know, Either EVFs instead of glass instead of, um, prisms, you'll see um, binos with full digital display, Bluetooth capability. That's going to be the future of production. And that's only probably two or three years away. So what you're buying now in top end, you'll, I, I doubt very much it's going to get any better than what it's going to get
0: better. So what's in the, if I was going to go out, I want a a set of binoculars. I mean, let's say we'll go to different hunters, some like the smaller stuff, like the 8 to 30, 32s. You've got the guys that like the, you know, uh, 8 to 42s, the 10 to 42. So if I come to you and I said, Rick, I want something for hunting. I want something that's going to be good, you know, all day, morning and night. What should I be looking at? How much should I wanting to be spent? You know, obviously there's different parts of the market. Some people like the cheaper stuff. They say it's good. Some people like the really expensive stuff. They're willing to spend the money, cry once, buy once. What? Should they buy
1: look, this is a very good question, and um, for starters, magnification wise, I'm a very huge fan of, of seven and eight pounds because they're so stable the holes and you exhibit you know maximum light transmission those as goes well because the exit pupil is still very decent, it's up over five millimeters. Um, in saying so, it depends who your application is going to be. I mean, you know, if you're shooting long range or whatever, you've got to go to a 15 power set of binos, um, but for general purpose. Hunting, I still think you can't pay to eight by by forty two It's probably one of the best binos you can buy, best magnification. Or or even if you're not going if you're not really that concerned about light transmission, the eight is even better because it's so compact. Big, big difference in weight. And it depends on what the hunting you're doing when I mean, you're doing you're packing you got a big pack back behind your last thing you need is a you know, a huge set of binos sitting in your back.
0: So you want to concentrate that. Yeah, I've seen some different guys over the years, you know, the 56s or the 50s, and they go, geez, there's a cumbersome to carry around. But you brought up something very good there, the objective. So when we are purchasing, you said the 8 to 32s or the 42s and going into the 50s, how much of a difference does that actually make to what the person actually sees? So if I'm hunting and I've got to speak, I want a pair of compact binoculars, uh, is that is there going to be a huge difference between the 32s compared to the say the 42s? And if so, how much? How, how can we measure that?
1: In actual fact, well, the 832 will have a four millimeter um, exit pupil, so that's four millimeters of light hitting your iris. Um, the 842s will have over five, five, 5.25, I believe it, millimeters of exit pupil. So you, you automatically, as soon as you go to the 842 over the eight, uh, 842 over the 8 by 32s. You, you're going to increase your light transmission by up to probably 20%, if not 25%. And that's the difference between if people choosing a 1042 and an 842. The difference in light transmission is well over 10%, probably 15%. So I always go back to the same thing. You cannot beat a pair of 842s. And I'm always doing tests on vitos. And holding both up, the 842s are so much more relaxed and comfortable, especially when you're trying to laser range at long, long distances as well.
0: So I just I got the eight to thirty twos. So when will that affect between those and the eight forty twos, when will that affect me the most? At early morning and last light? During the day we won't really see much of a usable difference? During day there's
1: no difference at all. You know, you it's gonna be identical basically. As soon as you start to hit the twilight areas because when they the whole idea is when see, when they're making lenses as such, they they um create them in a certain fashion to, to sort of get the maximum light transmissions in a certain wavelengths, okay? The sun binos, if you look at, if you look through some binos, you probably get a bit of a bluish tinge. Others you get a bit of a yellow tinge. The yellow tinge you automatically know they're gonna hold in light transmission light higher because in their light transmission scale, they'll peak in the in the reds and the and the yellows you see. But keep this in mind, as soon as the light starts to dim off, the first colours you lose is your is your reds red and um yellows and reds. So and then you just go to look at blues and greens. The point where we're just going to see tinges of grey. And that's where above anything else, that's where the Leica really stand out color And that the colour rendition in contrast when the Leica is down, there, there's nothing like them on the market. You know, they have their downfalls, I say, in some, some aspects. But when it comes to purest colour rendition and contrast, you know, Leica is really hard to beat. And that all comes from their photographic background.
0: So which models like would what what would you recommend in the obviously like a brand in regards to models? Someone comes in and says, I want those eight to forty twos or the eight to thirty twos, obviously their budget. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay, in a pure, but I feel obviously we our and not if it is a real benchmark, but I feel it um it's specifically mason birders and hunting situations, it's it's really spectacular. That's a real benchmark. But you are spending close to four thousand dollars for that particular buyer. Um Going down to scale, the ultra 8 8x42s and 10x42s. You're not losing a lot of ground as to what you do in an It's just a slightly, um, it's just a desktop in really. And then, of course, you have our Trinavid, which is our entry level. And they're, they're really decent bio at 17, for about $1,700. They, um, yeah, they exhibit a beautiful image contrast as well.
0: What about maintenance? I mean, if I bought a pair of binoculars, I'm spending, let's say, three to four thousand. I want to buy once and cry once. What do I need to do with them? If I'm, you know, if I want these things to perform for me, say for the next twenty years, thirty years, or until I die, what do I need to do with them? Do I need to send them in? Do I just need to keep them clean? I shouldn't have to do anything with them, or
1: basically, blockers are very look. They're, they're very reliable nowadays, and obviously, the last thing I do is start dropping them because you they're going to be out of collimation where the two barrels will be offset. But um, the main thing is just keep them clean and tidy. Yeah, after every hunt, I always say to people just wash them under a bit of warm water, let them dry, and there's your cleaning technique. You know, with our binos, you can take the eye cups straight out, get all dust out of there. That's the best way to clean a set of binos, just in water.
0: Is it okay to get it on the on the glass and everything like that? No oh, easy,
1: no, okay. no problem at all. Yep. No, the way I wash, if you see the way I wash binos, i pretty pretty harsh on them. That's what they're made for. There. That's the best way to clean them, especially after it was just light use, just a, just use a puffer and a brush, and that'll come up well. Just um, even a lens, a lens cleaning cloth or a lens pen is probably the best thing to carry. But they're very durable.
0: They are. I noticed when I went out for a, a hunt just last time, I was down south and it was kind of, not kind of, very dusty. And <laughs> I bought some binos back and I thought, geez, the dust was in everything. You know, I'm thinking, yeah. these bloody things, you just can't keep them clean. And you'd probably tell the first person, like, put them underwater and people say, what? You know, what, what's, what are you talking about? It's crazy. Yeah. You even fill up
1: your, your stink and just, you know, them back and forth it's not going to any damage to them all
0: and it's not going to do anything like it's not going to get into the binocular it's not going to no, i mean most nah, of them are rubberized right. it's not going to rust any of the nah. any metal parts or anything or
1: so look, they're fully nitrogen purged and um and they're purged in when they nitrogen purge binoculars they're eliminating any sort of moisture within the bioo so they're extrapolating any sort of oxygen there and you say the nitrogen or argon, argon gas and they they do in their production runs I do test a few. On the production, with, um, they actually fill the product with helium. And helium is a very, is that, it's probably the helium molecule half the size of the nitrogen molecule. Oh, sorry, the helium molecule of nitrogen or argon. So if it escapes with helium, they know they've got issues. So it's um, pretty good. No, most productions nowadays are fully waterproof. And when they say waterproof, though, um, they're waterproof to a certain distance of either a metre or three metres or so and they base that basically on a, on a half hour or one hour, then they'll start possibly, they could possibly start to leak. But you know, when we do our testing at, at LICO, it's um, pretty expensive. They'll leave them up to three metres of water for a day. <laughs> so they're pretty rock solid. Yeah. So
0: putting them under a uh, yeah, tap in the kitchen is not going to do any damage to them then?
1: No, and just getting on um, construction wise, like in our testing process, we if you we were to dissect one of our Noctavids or UltraVids, it's sort of like a Rolex watch, you know, that we have titanium and, and brass gearing within the focusing wheels. Magnesium housings, they're they're handmade beautifully. And um, when they actually test the focusing wheel, they actually rotate that wheel 10,000 times left and right to make sure it works right. And the benefit of that particular mechanism is that there's no oil base within the focusing wheel. So it's consistent from minus 22 up to plus 60 degrees in temperature. Whereas if you introduce a stainless steel system with oil, oil obviously becomes too viscous in summer, and solidifies in, in, in winter times, and you're getting a lot of different, um, different pressures across your focusing mill.
0: What a I I mean, obviously, there's different, a lot of different brands out there, Rick, as well. Um, you know, there's we've got a lot of different, you know, pricing structures. So when people are coming in, they're saying, oh, well, you know, I can get Yay Brand for this much, it's similar or it's this. What makes Leica say so, so much better than the, the competition? Now, we do know there's obviously good optics from different companies out there, but what makes them better and what makes that pricing to satisfy that product to the market? Well, the
1: thing is with Leica, you know, you, we have a product in, in which has. Huge depth building, history, you know, excellent customer service and all the quality materials that we use are top shelf. So you're paying for that sort of binocular. Whether it's a Zeiss SF or a you know Not-to-be or a um Swaro you know, they're all made to the same standards. They're, they're the alpha product. they're the best you can buy. But in saying so, um, you know, there's other really good manufacturers out there like Meopta and um oh, is you know beautiful. call color make a spectacular binocular. That's the Japanese brand. But none of them really have that depth like like it does. Especially when it comes to um, the color rendition and contrast that we achieve with our lenses, it is phenomenal. And that's all through our photographic background. But in saying so, I'll, I'll say something else. That you know the, the Chinese now are making some exceptional glass. And when you're buying binoculars, you'll you'll spend up to about three, four hundred dollars and get a certain type of bino with fully multi lenses, but as soon as you go that little step more, up to six, $700, and you're starting to buy Chinese or entry-level Japanese binos with um, ED glass, it's a fluoride-type glass, and you, you're really minimizing your chromatic aberration in that particular, which is color-fringing. And you're getting some really spectacular binos to the point where I have to say that the best that the Chinese are making now would probably only be I'm talking about Chinese and even Japan well, Japanese are on part of European optics. But the best the Chinese are producing now is probably three to four percent the best behind the best that the Europeans are making at the moment.
0: Really? I know they always Chinese always seem to get into it and uh, you know tend to master some well, aspects of optics. So I wanna be interesting to see what they do for the future.
1: Well the problem is that all these manufacturers love putting their factories in China and at the back door sits all the technology. So that, that's what happened.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about that too. What countries, I mean, where, where is Leica getting their optics from or the glass from? And where, where's the general, yeah?
1: So basically, you know, most glass is made from silica sand, and most of it's harvested from the Philippines and so on. And they, you've got a big company like Shock. You've heard of Shock Glass before, I imagine.
0: I have, yep, yep.
1: So Shock Glass supplies, you know, the HT series of glass, which is their high transmission rate. Which is their premier glass. And just to give you some idea that a a piece of shot HT glass in um, which is a fluoride, it's a, it's a they call it a FPL fifty three glass that would cost a company around nearly a thousand dollars for a kilo of that glass, which is like you know probably an inch high by seven inches by seven inches. That's it. They're very very expensive. But in saying so, you know companies. In Japan, you've got about three or four optical manufacturers that manufacture glass. Companies like um, uh, the Light Optics Company, Obvious Company, they make glass as well. Um, there's quite a few different types there, and they, they generically make a lot of binos for a lot of different companies.
0: Christian, question I did want to ask, so, is when, so when you get that glass, first off, A, is there different uh, grades of glass, and number two, the supplementary? Yeah, 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 explain that one. That'd be good.
1: Well, there's an ABE system, it's E, and it's, um, it's the, the, tra- the transmission rate of that glass or the, pure, you know, the purity of that glass. And you do buy different rates. I'll give you an example, when we, at Life, when we're making our televid spotting scopes, we reject around 40% of the glass that we receive. Just through our technicians, they find it satisfactory enough to put into our bino. So that glass gets shifted on to other companies, I imagine. They just sit there in a bucket for a while and it's sent back or they, it just goes to other manufacturers that aren't as plastic. Yeah. So, yeah, there is there's a huge, there is a big range of glass available. But, you know, buying anything European is, you know, you always know you're buying the best glass you can buy. But in saying so, the, the Kowa company, you know, they, they produce some spectacular products in German, in, not in Germany, so in Japan.
0: Yeah, Rick. I also want to find out about too. So when, because a lot of different people say, well, when you get the glass, does it come to the Leica company? Does it get made overseas, and you guys just get the finished product, and then say put it into the binocular? I don't really know the process. So can you explain who actually does the work on the glass? Actually, that goes into your products. Yeah.
1: Okay. So basically, you've got um, uh, the shot company which supplies glass to most of Europe. Okay, they um, they will sell raw glass. You've got not um, not uh, polished to companies like Zeiss, uh, Opta, Beyer, Fluro, and Leica. Okay, as raw glass. Once those companies, they do their own grinding and they apply their own coating. But in saying so, um, they will supply finished lens as well as does other companies in Japan or whatever wherever else. They made a lot of a lot of very very good glass. Also, it's coming out of the Philippines as well at the moment because actually, SHOT actually have a company in, in um, I think it's in Malaysia or, or the Philippines where they're processing all the finished glass products as well. So they're doing some very good job. Yeah. It's all about keeping costs down as well.
0: So what do you, if, if you get a bit of bad glass too or you say it doesn't get up to the standards, And obviously, do you guys send it back or do you sell it on to someone else? Or
1: I believe it gets shifted on, but I don't know where to. Okay, I'm not yeah. too familiar. You know. I've seen it in the factory there quite a few times and just did the big buckets and, I don't know what they do with it, but Not know what it.
0: It's definitely an interesting process, but I want to talk about uh, also to the the coatings. So, how does people one develop a coating? What are the devel- uh, What are the benefits? I should say of of coatings, and does that make a huge difference from say the glass raw to adding these coatings? And can you can you explain that process? Well, basically,
1: um, a piece. If you were not to, put, if you didn't polish, just say you grab a glass, the aspherics of it, and didn't put a coating on it, you would lose five percent of light transmission through that piece of glass. Okay. So if you've got 10, 10 um, elements within a, a set of binos, you say, you see by the time it gets to the ocular, you've lost fifty percent of that of that glass transmission. So yeah, so light tra- the um, the coating, they that's what matters the most, you know. And they, they use them like it's a metal oxide layer where they it, it gets vaporized into the lenses. Uh, a very high end top quality set of binos could have up to twelve layers of this of this. Um, Metal or the magnesium fluoride coating on the external lenses, and um, that's where you see a very important thing actually to look at when you buy binoculars is that you have, you've probably seen this. You've seen binoculars that say coated, multi-coated, fully multi-coated, and then you get the ED glass at the end of that. You see. So basically, what it means though, something just coated. It means probably there's you know a little bit of coating on both ocular and objective side, and then just probably plastic lenses, the cheapest of cheap binoculars. Multi-coated means You've got multi coating on the objective and the and the ocular as well. And internally you have a lay, one layer of coating per lens. When you get to fully multi multi it means you get the full the full light transmission vapors on every glass element. Then on top of that you go to the E D glass, which is, gives you your highest light transmission. And that's always using the objective lens and then when they incorporate it to the objective lens, they're either using it as an apochromatic lens or a chromatic lens. So that's where they, they use multiple lenses in that particular objective lens to minimise chromatic aberration.
0: So when you're developing codings, um, who develops the coatings? Does Leica have their own way they develop their own coatings? Does each company have its own way they do it all?
1: Yeah, all the optical optical technicians. But everyone, that's their own little um, secrets in the industry as to what they use and how they go about it. So, um yeah, that's all it is. It's, it's, it's their formulations. Like it's, like it's actually a recipe of different um, magnesium fluorides and metal oxides that they use. Okay. On a roof prism alone, in the example, on a high-end set of binos, you could have up to 40 layers of coatings, that uh a dielectric coating on the roof prism to give it maximum maximum transmission.
0: Yeah, is there anything that can get the coatings to go bad, or is there any way to we do we do we need to do anything to to keep them in the good condition, or is it no, it's just.
1: Only externally, all you've got to do is just not, not, you know, just keep your fingers off the lenses. Look, nowadays we have hydrophobic lenses, we have um, shielding lenses, you know, so they're more resistant to scratches and so on. So, really, the lenses we have nowadays, even right down to $600 at a binos, they're, they're really durable. And I always say to people, you know, after a hunt, the worst thing you can do with it, if it's dusty, is try and rub any, um, anything off there. Just always blow it out or wash it out. Otherwise, you're just going to be grinding the down into the lens. you listen to Australia's number one
0: hunting, shooting, and fishing podcast. You brought up a good one then too. How do we, when we come to cleaning the glass, obviously you said when you said soak them yeah. before, what is the best way to, uh, if we've got, you know, so we get a fingerprint or we had a bit of dirt, just get into the objective there or whatever it may be. What's the best way to actually clean the lens without obviously scratching it?
1: I always use a brush. I, I always carry a lens pen. That's one of the best things you can carry. Always. Yeah. Lens lens pens, even just a little brush, as long as it's got soft bristles. That's the best thing you'll carry within your pouch, end. Yeah.
0: always. So is the best thing to do is just get the bristles out first, get anything off it, and then use the other end just to clean it?
1: That's correct, yeah. Just use the other end to clean it. If it, Still a bit dirty, though. I wouldn't advise using the other end of the lens pin. I'd still go to a cloth or something and not put too much pressure on it. But in actual fact, a lens can be quite dirty, and you're still going to see the visibility still going to be fine. I've seen some lenses that have been hacked and they're so scratched, but you know they, they still look fine from looking at from the uh, objective
0: side. Is there such thing as too much cleaning, or how often should we clean or anything like that?
1: Oh, not really. I mean, just when you see there's finger marks or whatever, that's the only time you clean it, really. I mean, it's not like a rifle, you know, where you, sort of, you know got to clean after every shot or no, anything. definitely not. So, um, no, they're, they're very – look, any product on that is very, very durable, very durable.
0: What's uh, in regards to – I mean, like like anything, people uh, can get lemons in any product. That's just a fact of life. So if someone's purchasing a product, Leica, and they say, right, I'm spending big dollars on this product. I want it to last me a long time. That's the hope. Hopefully it doesn't get smashed or broken or stolen. Um, what do we do in regards to warranty? You know Like anything, if something happens, what does Leica offer in regards to a warranty to, to replace the product?
1: What's happened over the years is many years ago – all European manufacturers were offering a 30-year warranty on their binoculars, but now it's down to 10, 10 years. Anything on laser rangefinders that we sell, it's 10 years on the actual on the and optics itself, and three years on the laser. So any electronics, um, you, know, you always the warranty always gets shortened. And hence, like when you buy a set of image stabilized binoculars, you, um, you know, warranty on those quite minimums like two or three years or so.
0: Are we heading anywhere in the future? For know we're we'll talking about it a little bit earlier. But in regards to technology, where do you? We spoke about it a little bit earlier. Where do you think it will go? Do you think there's massive differences or something over the horizon that we don't know about yet that will you know make it magically better again? Or are we sort of you know, we're at that limit now where any any sort of um, things we develop are, are small in regards to what it was say twenty years ago.
1: No, like I was saying, if if anyone's ever looked through the latest. Um, photograph equipment, where they're using over five megapixels of, of, of um, image resolution in their viewfinders. their viewfinders. Outlooks looks of that, the, the image is spectacular. So I really foresee that in the future, that manufacturers will start developing EVFs into production. So once you've done that, you open up your whole world into electronics. You'll have a better bino, which will be of five to maybe 30 power within the one bino, and then you can incorporate a lot of electronics into that, whether it's light vision whatever graphics, but that's, that's going to be the future for everything you won't see.
0: What about any uh, developments, any exciting new products coming to the market that we should be excited at, say, over the next 12 months or two years?
1: Look, we're releasing some, um, next year we're releasing some pretty decent um, new products, you know, upgrades on our laser lane finders and some, a really nice new strap hitting the market next year as well and towards getting other products. So, But thermal imaging is becoming very popular as well, you know, um, a lot of people are wanting to do um, animals at night, and and so on, and pest control. So, I mean, you look at a brand like Pulsar. They uh, a good Pulsar rifle scope will cost you seven thousand dollars, and they sell a lot of them. They can't keep up with the selling. Actually, it's how popular they So, yeah, I think really. for hunting applications, I think um, night vision and well, when I say night vision, I mean thermal engine will be the big big push as well.
0: What about in the, just before we finish off, what about in the scope market as well? How long have they been developing scopes for the hunting community?
1: Leica like been for about 50 years or so now. Um, we we sort of branched in out of it, but now we're rock solid with it, and we're we, we probably investing, we're investing actually a lot of money into our scope at the moment. Um, in particular about the Leica, the sort of Magnus, you know, it, the optics, you is phenomenal. It really is a, a class, class sort of learning optics. The... The only thing about it, magnus is it does have quite a it's quite a heavy scope compared to the say a swirl in that we do use up to two mil of alloy in that in that scope. And it's made for a reason. It's just such a tough scope. You just can't you really can't do any damage to that scope.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's become quite a reference in Africa actually, especially our, our one to six um one to six magnus in our Fortis. you know, it's become a real reference on, on game hunts in Africa. So um, just for durability and, you know, one of the best image qualities
0: you can look through. If people, let's say, they're not sure, you know, they want to spend money, but they don't want to, you know, they want to do it once and they don't want to regret their purchase later on for something they might, you know, depending on, especially it comes down to magnifications. Even if people listen to this show, they may be confused. They want, you know, bigger, smaller, smaller footprint. They're not 100% sure. Can they talk to anyone from Leica? Can they get more information? How can they go about it? No, they can.
1: Look, in actual fact, they can talk to myself any time of the day about about any sort of manufacturing. That's not a problem at all. You know, they can call me anytime time and I'll put them on the right track. If it's not our product, it will be something else that I
0: could buy. Sorry, I was just going to um, say, if people wanted to, yeah. like, purchase the items too, is there any specific place they should go? Where can they purchase optics from? Is there any of the bigger companies? Where can they look? I mean, you know, because obviously... Look, with, we...
1: um, okay, so with... Um, look, obviously, you know, we're, we're a wholesale, we're the wholesaler, so we have around 20 outlets of Leica, from Australia. So, um, yeah, as soon as they go onto our website, they'll say who distributes our Leica products. And, I mean, other brands as well, but generally any, any gunshot carries a good range of optics
0: anyhow, they can get it in for you. Yeah, but
1: just, um, just go on the website, I'd say. We have, if they're interested in Hills, we have our light stores as well that they can purchase directly from us.
0: Yeah, Rick, I want to talk about the different roof prisms. I know there was, uh, you know, coming out the Abbey Coing. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and you know, some of this uh, technology that's uh, may give us more light transmission and, and, and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, well, basically, um, it's a very good question, actually, Jay, the... Um, the root prism is now becoming far more popular in binoculars, especially in in 15-power binos and 18-power binos, and so on, because the abacavir system, as compared to the pecan just say, it um, you only have four deviations of light through the peakam system, uh, through the system. So anyone using that sort of type of, of uh, root prism would probably have increased their light transmission in their binos up to 10 to 15 percent. So it's a very very good system. The other thing is very long roof prism, but so you can't use it on short on short binoculars. And um, but there is a way, there is ways around, you know, getting better light transmission, not at a at a cost. But um, a lot of Japanese manufacturers now are using them in their um, in their lineup, and I'm talking about companies like Bushnell. we um, also the Vortex are using it. Loophole. Anything which is Japanese based with the fifteen power generally, you're using the Abakang system. It's a really,
0: really good system. It's interesting. There is a lot of manufacturers now. I mean, talking about that, how does how does Leica compete with you know other big companies, and how do other big companies compete with Leica? Is it sort of you know is it a, it's obviously a, I want to say it's a small community because there's a lot of different products you can make with glass. But how does it compare between you know one company and, the, and think of the competition, so to speak? Look,
1: Leica has a the branding of Leica itself. You know, means lots of people because of it depth of history that we have so and it's just like you know you, if you buy a Rolex you're buying the Rolex brand um, and I'm sure Seiko make watches that probably function just as well as Rolex it's not better but really it boils down to um, you know the, the quality of products that we use and the quality control is you know best bar none I'd say it's really spot on
0: it seems to be a common thing in the industry. Everyone says, well, you know, we've got the best glass. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Schmidt and Bender or it's US Optics or it's Leopold, Vortex, whatever the brands are. Um, What actually goes into what makes the best glass and how do do different companies, I guess including Leica, sort of make these comparisons? Look,
1: I'll settle the argument pretty well here that um, companies like Schmidt and Bender and even American companies like US Optics or whatever, all the high-end tactical companies, Tangent Theatre whatever, they... They, they make superb riflescopes for tactical situations, military applications, but they—they're they not glass manufacturers. It's like, you know, Porsche don't make their gearboxes; they get them from ZF or whatever, or ASIMs in, in Japan. And it's the same with manufacturers of all high-end tactical scopes and a lot of scopes companies. So they—they they want to design a scope, they'll design the scope. They'll, you know, they'll design the turret system. They'll either develop their own medical systems or they'll pay a license to someone like Horace to use their medical systems. And when it comes to the glass, it's all part of their budget. Within that scope kind of they'll take different companies to put together a um, a formula form or a or a price for them. But over a fact that street vendor for many years did use some lighter glass, they've used the glass, they done I think at even at one stage, possibly supply them. So they do sell, source the best glass they can, but they don't make the glass. And, you know, going to the US manufacturers like, you know, Hyde Bushnell or Razor or whatever, they they source their glass from Japan, a lot of them Japanese based. And basically the same glass, it's just, you know, it's just, um, they don't make a like they don't form the companies won't formulate a light special glass for them. It's always on a grade system. So um, that's how it works. So what you're getting it's very generic, it's all OEM o product,
0: products, OEM I'm saying. Yeah. So when you guys does Leica make the glass they they don't make the glass, but they do grind it or which one's that yeah. We
1: no no one actually makes the glass, like making those Australian supplies, you know, BHP steel but we, we right. source out of the ground. Yep. Um, they, they buy it in a raw state. When I say raw, you know, it's in a brick form and it gets ground and, and finished and polished within the factory itself.
0: Right, and Leica does that, yep.
1: Oh, yeah, as I was saying, there's um, about five manufacturers in Germany that does, and that's Leica, Zeiss, Miopter, um, Swaro and Steiner, they're the ones that I know that definitely grind their own glass, and that's, that's where you're getting, you know, a true... A true manufacturer, you know, getting the full degree of that particular product.
0: It's interesting. I'm interesting to keen to see, you know, where it goes for the future. It's only as good as my eyes can be <laughs> as we get older, you know. We...
1: The thing is nowadays, you don't know where things are made. You really don't. And, um, you know, as much as it can be, say, made in Germany or made in whatever country, you know, the products can come from wherever they are because the factories that, that make the products, they source them from different companies as they do the wholesale and raw products. So, yeah, and I mean, nowadays, all you need is, I think, 30 or 40% input. But well, a manufacturing claim that it was actually made in that country anyway, and that could be 20% of that cost could go to the packaging. So that's how
0: it works. All right, Rick, thanks for joining me here on AHP to have a chat. I learned a lot today about different types of glass and, and I guess the manufacturing process of binoculars. It's something I've been wanting to do for a while. So Rick Cristiani joins me here on AHP to talk about everything to do with Leica products, from scopes to binoculars to rangefinders and all the technology that goes into it. So Rick, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, thanks for having me on the show Jay and um, if anybody wants to give me a call I'm more happy them about it
0: you've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast I hope you enjoyed it see you next time